You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Felicia, and this episode features Scott Davis. Scott is a Salesforce professional and product and project manager at Spotify. A Harlem native, by the time he started looking at colleges, Scott knew he wanted to get out of New York. He decided to attend the University of Miami with a focus on legal studies. After graduation, he returned to New York to attend law school, but chose to withdraw after just one semester to help his mom, who had lost her job. Scott put his goal of being a lawyer on the back burner, but even without any immediate job prospects, he had an inherent knowing that another path would be made clear. Eventually, a random, or really not so random, encounter led to a new job opportunity in database management for Absinian Development Corporation, the community and economic arm of the historic Absinian Baptist Church. Scott took that first opportunity and built on it, making leap after leap, both professionally and financially. He later set his sights on Spotify and began preparing for the opportunity before it even presented itself. Now it would take some time, but things came together, as they tend to do when you move with intention. His career is not the only area of his life that has evolved over the years. Today, Scott is a husband and father to twin boys, roles he's approached with the same level of focus and effort as his professional endeavors. So without further ado, here's his story. Scott, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for inviting me on. You were talking a lot of trash the other day about how it took us long enough to get you on the show. Yeah, because like I feel like I've been hearing about the December 26th for years now, but I feel like I got my invitation maybe the other day. And I was like... (laughs) As I I understand it from our extraordinary producer, you were invited on earlier. It just did not happen at that time. Yeah, I mean, so when I say the other day, I mean a few months ago, but... uh, And then I couldn't, ju- I just couldn't pull it together in order to get on. So mm-hmm. yes, he did invite me on months ago and now I'm just jumping on. So I appreciate you guys for not having any, anyone else take my spot. Right. We're, you know, we're always welcome. We tell people, take your time when you're ready to come on, we, we welcome you on. So, and we find that when people come on, it's the right time for them to be on. So everything works as it should. Sure. Let's see how that goes this time. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Let's get into it. Who is Scott Davis? Who is Scott Davis? Uh, So this is a really hard question for me to answer, right? Because like, I think I have um, uh, different parts to Scott Davis and different people know different parts of Scott Davis. So it's weird, right? Like my family knows me as Scotty, right? Like they've been calling me Scotty. And my childhood friends have been calling me Scotty for my entire life. But anybody who's known me as an adult or that I've introduced myself to, um, they know me as Scott. And those are like, I would say, like two different people. So if I were to jump into like the Scotty, right, I would say like that is a (laughs) I am West Indian uh uh as (laughs) contrary to what your your fabulous producer always calls me. But uh uh, so I'm West Indian. My mom is a uh, is from Belize. She's uh, she migrated here, and my father's from Harlem. And they met each other. I was born in '86, right? So I'm an '80s baby and uh, have those '90s values, right? But um, like I'm just like a, 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 a guy. I would say that grew up in Harlem, 
and really like understood Harlem from that perspective, but really didn't go down the path of like what I would say are like my typical Harlem friends that I that I know of, right? Um, however, on the other side, I am like a like the Scott side of me. I I, I am a, a a black man that works at a, a huge tech company, uh, Spotify, and um, you know I'm working my way up the chain, right? Not I wouldn't say that I'm quite at the pinnacle of where I would want to be in my career, but I would say that I'm on like the course and I have a clear path to 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 where I want to be. So while while I'm bringing those values of like being from let's say the hood uh into my, you know, corporate tech professional life, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things going on there. I do like to like incorporate the fact that I am a family man as well. I'm married. I have a wonderful wife and I have two twin boys at four years old. So uh, I would say like that is pretty much the entirety of my identity with that family part being like a huge, a huge influence on who I am today, as opposed to who I was before um, I became a father. So that's a great setup to the interview because you touched on three like major prongs that we often talk about in our conversations, upbringing, professional work, and then familial or other relationships as well. So you did, you did a good job on the answer to that question. I mean, Um, I I try. (laughs) So going back, you know, being an eighties baby, being born and and raised in Harlem, you mentioned going down a, a path that may have been different than your friends. What, at the time was a common or traditional path for a kid growing up in Harlem in that, that day and age. Right. So I would say that I grew up in the Harlem that was right before gentrification of Mm. Harlem. Right. So I grew up in a very, very, I would say like when I grew up, I was growing up in a tough neighborhood. I grew up in this, um, in this complex that people call projects, but they technically were not projects because they were privately owned. But uh, an assortment of seven buildings that uh, was a com- that created a community uh, called Savoy Park on 141st Street, and the typical person in the neighborhood, uh, I would say, let's say the my typical friend, uh, probably um, uh, hung out on the street or on the corner a lot. They uh, uh, when I was younger, right, there the, the, they were little like uh, features to their um, to their uh, 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 upbringing or the way that they were raised is that they could stay out all hours of the night. School wasn't as important to them. Uh, not having like activities to do, right, that were like structured and scheduled for them ended up with them spending a lot of time creating things for them to do. And usually that was stuff that wasn't um, wasn't great. Right. A lot of my friends didn't go to college right away. If they, if, I mean, my, my childhood friends didn't go to college right away. They ended up either like waiting or going to college later or going to colleges like very, 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 very close to home. Um, whereas like uh, I went to college very far away from home. I went to a school in Miami uh, because I just couldn't take it in New York anymore. And, uh, you know, like even when I was coming up, I was always doing something like school was super important to me. Uh, I was I was either playing tennis or I was in karate or I was playing tennis or like like I, I literally every single day and 
uh, and pretty much all like daylight hours of the of the day i i uh had something to do which i think affected the fact that i was able to make certain choices that i think were uncommon to the people that uh i i generally spent time with so where did that drive come from that kept you super involved and super focused were your parents like nope you're on a different path we're preparing you to be able to go to the school of your choice and be well-rounded etc or was that some of that inherent to just who you are it's weird um so i hear stories about how um like like uh other people that I know, they were always thinking about college when they were like growing up, like college or was an early memory to them. College wasn't very, very much an early memory to me, but it was, um, it was still a part of like my psyche. It was almost like a secondary thought. My brother, who is, um, I have a brother, I have a brother on my mom's side, um, from a different father. And my brother's 18 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And my brother, like, while he was a brother, right, being 18 years older, he had a level of responsibility uh, to my life and to my safety and my well-being that other brothers probably don't have if they're much closer in age, right? Like, my kids, they don't have responsibilities to one another to, like, where one has to make sure that the other one is brought up uh, a certain type of way. So that's first, right? So he had that type of relationship with me. Secondly, my brother went to Columbia and he was an engineer when he was at Columbia, right? So he already had a like very, I mean, for him to get into, like he was first generation, um, uh, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't actually to think about it, he wasn't born in America. So he was the first generation of my family to go to college, but he wasn't even a, he wasn't even American. He was an immigrant as well. So he kind of brought a mindset that was existing in the household that was, you know, college is important. So no one ever said, you need to go to college, right, when I was younger. Then I had my father, right? My father and my mom uh, got together uh, when I was, I mean, obviously I was not born, but they got together in a very precarious way because my mom was married to another guy. Mm. and uh who was not my my brother's father but she was married to another guy my father met her my mom she got pregnant with me and they decided to keep me and my father uh because of his upbringing because of the fact that he didn't know his father that actually influenced him to be very active in his child's life for regardless of what the situation was and i'm his only son right so what ended up happening was that my mom obviously got a divorce from the guy because who, how do you how do you deal with that that particular situation uh, from his perspective? But um, my father, though my mom and my father were not actually together in my childhood, my father was pretty much super present, mm-hmm. and my father had gone to college as well. He was the first in his in, in his line to go to college. So I'm the second in my father's line to go to college, and. He had that mindset that was like, listen, college is important, but I'm not going to push college on you. I'm just going to push all of this other stuff that gets you ready for college, right? So schoolwork was super important, right? He would help me with my homework every night. Mind you, he didn't live with me, right? So he would come over, help me with my homework, and then leave, right, every day. Super important. 
And I would say like those two structures uh, that, I, that, 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 that I was brought up in kind of like bred it in me, it almost weaved it in, um, in a way that was like under, undercover. Like it was almost like, I, like the way that they brought me up, it was almost no other path for me to take even though I didn't know that that was the path that I was taking. Like, I thought I had free will, but to, in reality, my parents had constructed my life for me. And this was like the route that I was going, regardless of what I thought that I'd chosen that or not. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense. Um, and you don't hear very often someone coming from Harlem saying, I played tennis, like that was my thing, right? So yeah. we have these stories that we know about, like the Williams sisters being in Compton and their dad's discovering this tennis video and deciding that that would that's what it was going to be for them. And, you know, you hear these pockets of stories where people uh, entered these sports that are historically pretty white. We, let's just say it. Yeah. Um, and, and very expensive. Exactly. Yeah, right. And it, it's a class thing it, that really leads to the race thing. Right. Um, but in your instance, this is something that you were really into as a kid. So how did that specifically come about? So it's weird, right? Because my father, the reason why my father was able to go to college was because uh, he actually played basketball. He got a basketball scholarship to a college in uh, Texas called Lamar University. And that's how he went to school. And uh, of course, because of that, my, my, my father brought me up to play basketball. And it's funny because like, I like, while my brother was my brother, I had a cousin that was really close to me as well. He was only two years older than me. And my father and my cousin actually really liked basketball. So their relationship clicked over basketball. And my cousin actually coaches basketball overseas for a professional basketball in Denmark, right? A uh, professional ba basketball team in Denmark, right? And that was partly because of my father's influence. But I hated basketball and I was my father's son. <laughs> so... He kind of like for the first, I would say like 12 years of my life, almost uh, when I was able to bounce a ball and catch and all of that stuff, almost pretty much forced me to play, even though every single time I played, I never really wanted to play. Um, and it was weird because at 12, um, I was in sixth grade and we went on a camping trip. My father took us on a camping trip, me and my, me and my cousin. And we, uh, uh, there was really nothing to do on the camping trip. We went fishing, we made a fire, but then there were these tennis courts that were there. And he, and we just happened to rent some rackets and I liked it. I liked it more than basketball at the very least. So when we got back to Harlem, he enrolled me in a, a program that was at the Armory um, on 143rd Street. And it was called the Harlem Junior Tennis uh, Association. And from 12, pretty much, I started out two days a week and then I moved up to four days a week. And then literally I was playing tennis uh, after school every single day uh, up until I graduated from high school and then went to college. And then even in college, in the summer times, I would do uh, different summer jobs that were uh, tennis related. And it was because of tennis that I was able to see the world in a different perspective, right? So like, um, uh, uh, like you said, like they were, they, it, it, it ended up being like a, a, because tennis is expensive, court time, rackets, gear, 
um, because that world is expensive, what, what ended up happening was that I ended up meeting people that could afford to send their kids to tennis all of the time, right? And in meeting those people and hanging out with those people and going to their houses, I started seeing a whole world that I, that friends of mine were not seeing that was outside of Harlem, but close enough that it was like almost a different world. So my best, best friend, godparent, one of the godparents of my children is a friend that I met while I was playing tennis. And she lived in New Rochelle and she has a, and her father was like vice president of Lehman Brothers before Lehman Brothers went under and ended up like retiring. He has like seven different houses, black man, black family, but like very, very rich. And, and I started to see that that is a life that I actually prefer over like, not that my life was bad, but over a, a life where I was living in an apartment and I was making, making dues that way. Right. Like I could be very, very uh, 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 successful and live that life, but that's not the life I actually wanted to go into. I actually wanted to go this route. And I was like, all right, cool. And those became my main friends right? The Black tennis player families. Um, but, you know, like access is also a thing too, because my, it's not like my family had all of the money on the planet. So while she and her family could afford to pay their kids to go and do that, I actually had to work for my tennis, my, my court time. So like I worked at the tennis facilities that I, that I played at, that that was why I was spending so much time at tennis. I would spend a certain level, I forget how many hours, but like every day after school, I spend like an hour or two hours working. And then I would be on a court for the next three hours. And then I did that every day uh, for a very, very long time. Um, uh, to the point where I was like playing in tournaments, I was ranked, I was like 150 on the East Coast. I was like, I'm going to get a tennis scholarship. Never actually got a tennis scholarship, but um, but it it was a really, really good place for me to be and a, a, a good perspective for me to have uh, when I was going into college. I don't think that tennis influenced me to go to Miami. I think that was mostly my father uh, just being being a guy and knowing about Miami uh, and like how much fun you can have going to Miami. Uh, but uh, when I got to college, having tennis as a, um, as a skill set I was able to to um, access certain things that if I didn't have it as a skill set, I would not have been able to access at school. Like my my work study job was at tennis courts, um, doing things and helping me make the extra money that I needed to make at that time in order to afford like the things that I wanted to buy when I was at college. So mm -hmm. yeah, but you know, our stories are similar in that because of where I went to school and because of my activities, I was exposed to people with like a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, just money I couldn't even fathom. Um, and while it do, it did show me what's possible, that access and what kind of life I might want to build for myself, there was part of it though that was like a sobering view at how different we were and what the wealth gap really meant. Um, did you have any negative feelings around being exposed to these people and knowing that they're yeah. living a, a completely different life than you were. So it's weird, right? I'm not going to mention this person's name, <laughs> but for some reason, I remember this guy's name. His name actually, I'm going to say his name is Jeff, but I'm not going to say his last name. And it was this white kid. 
And only in retrospect can I actually recognize this. But at the time, I hated this kid. Hated him. I I I was much better than him athletically. Uh, but he just had this this ob- obnoxiousness to him. And it only was with me. And in retrospect, I realized that it's because his family was rich. It's because he was white. It's because I was black and I and my family was not rich. And I think he recognized that. Whether it was explicit, like told to him, and this is how his family like saw that, or he kind of knew it in his interactions with me. And I like, once again, only in retrospect can I recognize this. I realized that um that there was a difference between me and him. But the positive to that was that I recognize that as I know I'm better than him and I just now need to uh, show that. And at the time it was in tennis, right? It was because I was around the tennis courts. I know I'm better than you just in life, but I'm going to show you on a tennis court, right? And I'm going to embarrass you on a tennis court in order to prove to you that you're not better than me for whatever reasons. And in retrospect, his thinking he, he was better than me, I think it had to do with the fact that it was like a class and status thing, not because he was athletically better than me. Uh, so that was like my only like real negative experience that 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 occurred when I was dealing with like these people that had this wealth that was just like so much different from mine, and they had worlds that were so much different from mine. Those were the only like negative uh, negative interactions that came from that. It was with this kid, Jeff, and and once again that was brief. So I don't know. Maybe there were others and I just repressed them, but I can't think of anything else at this point. You know what I have realized over the years is I, I think I in earlier earlier in my adult journey, I would kind of say the same thing, like, oh, there was this one kid. There's always the one kid, right? Yeah. And but then like as the years have gone on, I've done more like retrospective thinking around that time in my life. Um, and also too, for me, it wasn't just Act, after school activities, I was, I was going to school with these kids. Yeah, I'm starting to realize now that there was a view and an expectation that I was gonna, I was less than, or just was ill-equipped just by virtue of where I came from and the fact that I was black. And those are things back then. It was so subtle. What we now know to be microaggressions, right? That I didn't even pick up on it back then. Back then, yeah. it was just, you know, I'm 13, 14. I'm just gonna prove to them that I'm good enough. But now thinking back, I'm like, no, that was racist. Like that right. was straight up racist. And it was a hostile environment and toxic in a lot of ways. And, you know, we're resilient people. We thrive uh, in spite of, but it's it's one of the things now, you know, I, I'm often reflecting on is as much as those types of experiences really open our worlds up um, and show us that there's another way to live and can push us to strive in certain ways. How it yeah. has affect how has it affected us in ways that are not as positive that we're not even thinking about because right. we are so resilient and we've been trained to achieve in spite of whatever's going on. Sure, I mean, I would even say like, uh, like only in retrospect do you see the microaggressions. I would go as far as to like almost even right before I met my my now wife, I 
I would probably like public, not publicly, but I would say in my own close circles. Yeah, I would. I would be one of those that would say something like, "Oh, I don't think I've ever actually experienced racism," or mm. not that I don't didn't experience racism, right? But I think I would say things like, "I don't know if I experienced racism. I don't know if the the like if I like the example I used to always give was if I go to the club, right, and I don't get in." I don't know if that if if it's because I'm black or if it's because I'm a guy, right? And because I don't have that data, I can't uh, accurately attribute it to racism. Uh, uh, but in reality, it could have ab- absolutely been the fact that I was black, right? And I don't have all of the data, but in reality, it was right. So I like the the whole recognition of racism and a whole um, uh uh uh. uh, uh like I think uh, parents or or visibility of like that that th- those interactions I think are only things that I'm more recently like kind of recognizing of my life in the past as I look at it from this lens that I'm in now, but it's definitely not something that I even was aware of when I was a was a kid. I had a great life, right? Mm-hmm. Like I only have great. Um, I only have great memories for the most part. Only a few like are like of confrontation or anything like that. And I and I think because you know we're in this culture now where there's so much more information and exposure to right. racism in all its various forms, some of which are not as covert. Covert, you know. Back then, it was just I had these experiences. This person was a jerk, but outside of that, I thrived and I achieved and that's it. For us as Black people, that's the story, right? That's the tweet. Mm -hmm. Like, I was in this environment, I didn't have as much money as them, but I competed, be it academically, be it athletically, whatever. Um, And we praise that and it should be praised, but I think there needs to be more conversation around the overt things that have happened that may run under the surface that we haven't even taken the time or been given the space or the the, the appropriate words to be able to explore and figure right. out how that affects us today. And also, you know, you're a family man now, which we'll get to educate our kids, right? For me, my future kids about about that and what to look out for and what to expect. Um, I think about that, right? Because like, I feel like, I think people are way more, way less risk adverse, obviously, when they live as single individuals and they're young and they have, they don't believe that they can get hurt or die, right? But like, as I became a father and as I have like, like these lives that I have to take care of and like just seeing them and the fact that they don't see the world uh, as uh, jaded as I do, you know, I wonder like, what is the best method for bringing them up? Because once again, I feel like I had a great childhood, right? I had these these instances where I, I found confrontation in my life, but I, in, in total, I feel like I had a great childhood, but I w- wasn't um, aware of like the, the acts of racism against me or the microaggressions against me. Is that something that I should make them aware of, like purposefully do that, right? And then jade them and, and, and remove them of their innocence uh, uh, quickly or not, right? Like, <laughs> like, it's the whole like question of like, do you tell your kids that Santa exists or not? And when do right. you do that, right? I mean, I've told my kids that Santa doesn't exist, but they don't believe me. So that's how that goes. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I, I, I don't think about parenting advice because I don't believe people without kids should like advise people with kids. When I think about that, that next phase of my life, um, and what happens right when the kid comes home and says, "Oh, Johnny said this to me," or you know right. what have you. For me, I think my my plan and plot and whomever I have kids with may feel differently. But until that happens, I don't feel the need to arm them because I feel like it happens so early in, in our childhoods at some point, you don't have to. But when the incident happens, let's acknowledge it for what it is in terms that they can understand um, yeah. and provide that education because I don't think I know a Black person who didn't have some experience that was was a moment in time that had them acknowledge that they are different for one reason or another. And whether they affirmed about that or not depends on who parented them. But I think we all have those moments where you can point back, even if you didn't recognize it then and say, oh, that that was something, right? Um, So I think that's my approach at the appropriate age when something happens, being able to acknowledge it for what it is and giving your kids time and space uh, to to hear you and what you're saying and receive that and be educated and affirmed if something didn't make them feel so great. Sure. When we get to the uh, family segment of this recording, I'll tell you a funny story. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story of how I was a parent to my kid and how that could be a, a good or a bad thing. But Okay, we'll so yeah, that. we'll put a plug in that. Um, sure. But speaking to your nuclear family growing up, you mentioned having this great childhood and your dad being present despite your parents not being together. As a kid, did you ever question that though? Like, were you guys ever together? Like, how did this work? So it's funny. I don't know my mom, like they say these love stories. I don't know my mom and dad's love story. I don't know how they met, when they met how quickly after they met that I, my mom ended up pregnant with me, I would assume that it was pretty quickly, but um, I don't know. Uh, I do remember, so I'm a big, uh, I watch a lot of TV now, but uh, I, I watched TV back then as well. Not as much as I do now, obviously, because my father was like, no, that'll rot your brain. But when I would watch TV, you would see a particular image of a family. And I think that the, that the show at the time, at least, was either it was um, the Stephen or Carol show. I think Family Matters. I think is mm-hmm. the name of it. You, you saw what the family looked like. So I had questions for my parents about why aren't you guys together? Uh, but it didn't. I didn't have any longing for it. Uh, it wasn't like I was. I need you guys to be married. All my friends' parents are married. Actually, a lot of my friends' parents were probably in broken homes as well. So it wasn't, it, I was probably more similar to them than if my parents were together at that point. But yeah, I did have those questions, but it wasn't a big part of my life. I'm only really right now kind of like I'm doing this uh, genealogy thing on ancestry, trying to figure out my life, uh, like my my ancestors. And uh, I'm only right now kind of like asking those uh, those in-depth questions of my father and my mom and things like that. But uh, I didn't when I was a kid. I didn't really I don't even think I really cared that much. I Mm -hmm. think it was like a question at one point and then I just moved on after they gave me an answer. Well, I mean, I think it it speaks to the health of their relationship in terms of raising you and the fact that your dad was helping you with your homework, super involved in your activities and in your life and guiding you in a way, um, which is why I firmly, when people say, oh, I grew up in a broken home, just because your parents are not together doesn't mean your home is broken. 
right? And it, it can function in a way that is healthy for the child, which I think can help to allay some of those questions. Like, y'all not together. I'm really not sure why or how, but I'm doing all right. And I get to see both of you and that's okay. Um, so kudos to them. Yeah, I mean, my brother, like, labeled us as dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he, he's said those words multiple times to us. But, I mean, I don't know. I Like, when I say, so, I call my brother my brother. He's actually my half-brother, right? I don't need to, I don't find the need to label him that. But at the same time, like, when I do label my family as a broken family, I only do that just to kind of uh, illustrate the fact that my parents weren't together. Because what do mm-hmm. you call that, right? Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it just becomes a very wordy sentence of, right. you know, my, my mom and my dad are not together, but I live with my mom and my father lives across the street, but he's always in my <laughs> life. And, like, all of that, like, what is that sentence? I just, you know, to make it quick, kind of explain what that is. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears, what drove you to want to leave New York for college? Oh, so that's actually a very quick story. I, um, my father was like, all my life was like, oh yeah, Miami, Miami, Miami. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll apply to the University of Miami when I get the opportunity to. And I was applying to everywhere. My brother worked for uh, Mega Everest College at the time. So I just got all of these uh, fee waivers and I didn't have to pay for the application. So I, I literally applied everywhere. I applied, I didn't apply to any uh, uh, state schools, uh, but I applied everywhere. I was applied to Columbia, NYU, I applied to UCLA, I applied to uh, uh, USC, and I applied to University of Miami. And I only got into, <laughs> it's funny because I actually have pretty good grades, but I only got into NYU and the University of Miami. Mm. And I was like, all right, now we need to make a decision because NYU is a better school than, than Miami, but Miami is a better environment <laughs> than NYU. And uh, I got a, I was going to school one day while I was making the decision and I stepped off the bus into like one of those slush puddles. Like you, like you think it's snow, but it's really just like water and ice. And my leg went about that high all the way up to like maybe my mid calf. And I had to walk around school with that. And that was my decision. I was like, I can't deal with the snow and stuff for the next four years. So I was like, I was like in my head, I was like, the way that I justified it was like, I know I'm going to come back to New York. So let me get an experience away from New York while I have the opportunity. But that was like the catalyst to that decision. And it was a very, very quick decision after that. So first of all, anybody who's grown up in a cold state where it snows has had that experience. First person I've met where that experience has driven them to choose a college. uh, (laughs) I think the rest of us have just been like, it's a way of life. Like you're going to be at the bus stop cold one day. You're going to step into a puddle. Like it just is what it is. So you know how you said at the beginning of this conversation that like usually when people show up, it's because they're ready to show up. I have been very lucky in life, like whether it's because of God, to be completely honest, I don't even know if I believe in God. I was brought up religious. My mom is Catholic. My father's Muslim. I was brought up religious. I don't need any poor, but I don't know if I believe in God. However, in my life, things have worked out for me, Mm -hmm. right? For whatever reason. And 
I only really started realizing it around that same time that I was making that decision. And I was confident. I felt confident making the decision, even though I had no other reasons to choose Miami other than the fact that I had stepped in this puddle. And I know I wouldn't be stepping in these puddles when I go to Miami. Right. And things worked out. I actually did it. I did. (laughs) This is my life. Right. I didn't know anything about Miami before I applied. I didn't know anything about Miami before I accepted my application, right? So I get to my, I get to school for a college. So I decided I wanted to go. Then I go on a college tour. I go on a college tour. I find out that they have this big football team. It's like football is big at Miami. Turns out they had one of the best football teams of all time in college football. (laughs) So you didn't know I had no idea. No idea. (laughs) Even I knew that in high school, but go ahead. No, I didn't know it. So it worked out for me ultimately. Right. But like a lot of like my life decisions have been things like that. Um, So you'll see that as a trend, depending on how far you, you go with these questions that you ask. (laughs) Okay. So you get, you get to Miami. Um, that is a school where they have fun. Miami is a city where you have fun. And yeah. a lot of people, when they get away from home into those environments, they can really go wild, right? Yeah. Did you have that experience or did you maintain a level of discipline? I graduated 3.6 mm-hmm. GPA. Graduated. First semester, however, I had like 2.0. <laughs> Glad you clarified that. Right? Uh, so I went. So I went to Miami not actually knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, ultimately in life. I thought I had an interest in the human mind. So I put psychology as my major. It turns out I actually don't like psychology and I don't even understand the, the, the relevance around how they teach psychology. So I, it just didn't vibe with me when I got there. And I didn't do that well my first semester for that class and the fact that I have this uh, uh, like block when it comes to like learning new languages. And in the arts and science school that I had to be in in order to be a psychology major, they make it a requirement that you learn a foreign language. And I was taking a Spanish course and I was just so bad at it that I just couldn't get to the next level of Spanish. So I ended up just dropping out of that school altogether the arts and science school. And I ended up transferring into the business side of things. So my first semester, I took five classes, which I think is, yeah, I think it's like 15 credits, if I'm not mistaken. And I transferred into the business school, I withdraw from all of the other classes that I didn't want to take. And I ended up um, taking like business related uh, courses, but I I um, took a, 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 uh, 18 credits instead of 15 credits, right? Because I needed to like, obviously like, you know how the college thing, you have to wait it up and you have to do really well in order to make that first semester actually not as important as it was. And it was only because of that, that I was able to uh, like change my trajectory. Um, And I was able to graduate with a 3.6. So when did a career path, when did a career path uh, materialize or crystallize for you? Where you were like my this current is what I career to do. path. 
My the first current, one. Current. A career <laughs> path. Notice I didn't say your current. When did a career so path be the initial the, one? So it's funny, right? You're a lawyer, right? Yes. That was my initial career path. Mm. Um, I took a business law class that was actually taught by really, really great professors. It turns out that Miami teaches things in a fun way, but everybody else in like all the other law schools don't teach law that way. So for some reason, it was horrible after I got out of of Miami. (laughs) But uh, I took a business law class. I changed my major. So my major was, I had a double major. It was business law. uh, No, it was uh, business administration with a focus on legal studies. And um, that's what I graduated with, thinking that I took the LSAT. I got accepted to law school. I went to law school. I dropped out of law school. And then uh, that it, that was the trajectory that ended after I dropped out of law school. <laughs> so those of us who've gone to law school, we all have those people that we know from law school that you met the first semester. Mm-hmm. You know, everything culminates. Yeah, it culminates with those final exams, right? And uh, you come back for spring semester and people are just gone, like just gone. fell off the Facebook planet. Just like, no, this is not for me. So you were one of those after the first semester you left? Yeah, December, I made the decision. So it was weird. I hated law school, right? So once again, this is one of those things where it's like things have worked out for me, right? I hated law school. Everybody in my life was saying, oh, yeah, you should be a lawyer. But I hated law school and could not see how like the experience of law school manifests into a better life after law school, right? Like I didn't see that path. I did decent my first semester, right? After my finals and everything like that. But my mom got laid off. And my mom was, and I was living, I actually had come back to New York Law School and my mom uh, was living at home. My mom had gotten laid off. because, And my mom was 60 something at the time. So she wasn't really getting another career. So I actually, uh, because she got laid off, I actually dropped out of law school for that reason, not because I hated law school. Had I, had it just been because I hated law school, I would have probably finished and been miserable right now as a lawyer. Not to say that the legal profession is bad. I know a lot of happy lawyers, but I don't think I would have been happy as a lawyer. You know what happened? You know a lot of happy lawyers? Because I don't. I know, I know, I know two lawyers who are happy with their lives. Now, granted, I don't know too many lawyers, but I know two mm-hmm. who are happy. Um, well, three, let's say, right? Because we have a frat brother that I think he owns his own law firm and he's pretty happy in the profession. But um, but yeah, I I mean, I dropped out saying I was probably gonna go back and I just never went back. And I figured out something else after that. And that was another thing that worked out for me in life. That was kind of like, I don't really have an, any ba- basis outside of the fact that like I have this smaller reason, but this is the direction that I'm going and let's see how that goes. And that's how I ended up where I am right now. So what did that look like though? Because it's easy to be like, okay, I'm not going back. I'm just going to go in a different direction. But in reality to actually manifest the job and a, a, a well-paying career trajectory is a whole different story. So what did that look mm-hmm. like for you? Right. So that's where you get into Scott V2, right? <laughs> I uh, I dropped out in December. So after the new year, I actually couldn't find any real work. Like 
you can't be a paralegal without like really like kind of understanding it ish. And the fact that I was not in law school anymore didn't help. I, because I wasn't really like in on the business path, even though I, I study business administration, that wasn't really like the thing for me. So I couldn't find anything that I actually wanted to do. And I uh, met somebody who lived in my building at the time. And this is right around like now Harlem is gentrifying. So like the buildings that I lived in were generally uh, 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 lived in by people who had been there for decades, right? My mom being one of them and me being another one. But now there are younger people moving into my into my neighborhood. So I met I'm meeting new people just being at home. And I met this uh, uh, girl who was from Chicago and she said, you should temp for a little bit at the very least. And she gave me a connection that she had had because she was temping. And that's how I made it through the second semester, right? From January till the summertime. And then in the summertime, you go back to tennis, right? Because now I have this friend who, because of this friend, I'm meeting all of these other people and going to these different events that like generate I wouldn't even been invited to, right? I meet this woman who is impressed by me for some reason. I meet her and she uh, says, oh yeah, we're hiring at uh, Abyssinian Development Corporation. Do you know of Abyssinian Development Corporation? Yes. Okay. But for the so people, with, explain explain what that is. Yes. So Abyssinian Development Corporation is a community-based organization that actually got started out of Abyssinian Baptist Church, one of the oldest churches, uh, Black uh, African-American churches in America, started by people from Ethiopia that they came to Harlem was like, no, we need to start a church. It's on 137th Street, the church, but the, 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 um, Abyssinian, Abyssinian Development Corporation was a community-based organization that their whole initial purpose was to build uh, or to buy back or to occupy the residents in the, 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 sorry, the real estate in Harlem in order to make it affordable for people in Harlem, right? And that's what their initial goal was. And then they evolved into this community-based organization because they're like, all right, we can't just give people homes. We got to do all of this other stuff for the community too. So like they moved into schools to say, all right, that we need to uh, address the, you know, like the bad schooling that had occurred in, in Harlem. And they were the, they were the reason, Abyssinian Baptist, Abyssinian Development Corporation was the reason why the Thurgood Marshall Academy was built in Harlem, which is the first, I think it was the first public new public school built in New York for like 50 years prior, right? There had been no new schools built in New York and maybe Manhattan. I could be wrong. Maybe Harlem. I don't know. I can't remember the history. But it was of 50 years, it was the first one. It was on 135th. And that's where I worked. And this woman who I'd met ultimately through a friend of mine, the, the godmother to my children, ultimately through her. I'd met her and she was on the board of Abyssinian Development Corporation and said, we are hiring for like a summer program. You should interview. And I interviewed, I got the job. 
and then I got promoted through uh, Abyssinian Development Corporation from like that summertime seasonal position to a uh, a more long uh, full time position where I was a data administrator, a data can't what my actual title was, but I was a data administrator for them. Right, they didn't have any data on the kids' test grades and things like that, and I did that, and I was there for four years. Mm. And that's how I got that job. Had I not known my friend <laughs> from tennis, I would have not have even known about that job. Or maybe I would have through another channel, but I don't think I would have. And from there, a whole other like random instance happened where a few years after that, I had, so going back to my brother, everything's connected. Going back to my brother, my brother went to Columbia. He was very influential in my life, like I said. My brother is an alpha, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And when he was like stepmaster of the city and super hype and like those first few years that you witnessed Demarcus when he was like super excited about Alpha, mm-hmm. my brother, I was three and my brother was taking me with him to uh, like ch- chapter meetings and like step shows and like on campus. He had me like, like his like, like sorors on campus was watching me as he was performing and then like all of that type of stuff was happening right so i had this like alpha influence uh i i am working at this at this job i i ended up becoming an alpha while i was uh after after uh in the grad chapter the harlem alphas and uh i be, ended up becoming an alpha i say all right it wasn't the process that I actually would have preferred for myself. I would have preferred a, a much more difficult process than, a, than the initial one that I had. And I meet this guy. This guy shows up at my chapter one day, right? His name is Corey Matthews. Shows up, my, up in my chapter one day. We ended up becoming like really close because he was close to my age. Everyone else in the chapter was like much older than us. And because of Corey Matthews and a couple other brothers within the chapter, I was able to get a much more difficult process that because now I have that kinship to Corey through that process, he was able to connect me to somebody else that then like really gave me the the starting point to like where I am today. Right. So it's because of Corey Matthews that he introduced me to someone, her name is Kathy, who gave me my first job as a Salesforce administrator for another nonprofit organization called Leadership for Educational Equity. And that's how I got my start at, as a Salesforce uh, professional. And now what I am is a Salesforce product manager. And I'm running like all of our like podcast product operations at Spotify, at sales, at least. It was all because of that. Weird. So thinking about that in totality, did you really have the mindset back then to say, I'm leaving law school. I might go back eventually, maybe. Um, I can't find a job right now, but everything's going to work out for my good. Did you have, you know, some people have that knowing, like that Diddy energy, or other people are just like, I'm just trying to figure it out. All right. So I didn't, I wasn't like pessimistic and like, oh, damn, my life is, can I curse? You have already. It's fine. We'll mute it later. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I, I, wasn't pessimistic, like, oh man, my life is going to crap and I'm never going to make anything of myself. I had moments of that, but it wasn't like the general 
the general uh, feeling that I had. But I wasn't Diddy, where I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be rich, right? Like, I'm going to make it. It was more like I had a calmness that it wasn't that I knew things were going to work out. I just knew it wasn't going to be terrible, Mm. right? And whatever happens, happens. But I was confident in the decision that I had made and for the reason I had made that decision. And that's what gave me that calmness to like be able to move forward. Um, I knew that like my mom, like I now needed to be that person that supported my family. And I needed to do what I needed to do in order to do that. So now I had this, like I had a really good reason for why I was doing something. And that's what gave me the calmness. Whatever happened after that happened after that almost. Mm-hmm. So thinking about Spotify specifically, Spotify is on those that list of young companies where it's sexy to work there, right? It's, it's a company with people. And when I say that, I mean, from the outside looking in, sure. right? So It's actually great working here. So, you know, so, and people have, <laughs> when you think about Facebook slash IG, Amazon, uh, PayPal's of the world, Twitter, all these different companies that like people are like, oh, I would kill to work there at Google. Right. Most people feel like this is a great place to work. Then you have others that are like, it's not all it's cracked up to be, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's notoriously difficult to get into these places. So mm-hmm. what was that experience like for you? To get in, to like actually mm-hmm. like get there. So I would say that I made the decision that I wanted to work at Spotify maybe two years or three years before I actually started working at Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I was in, I was in my Salesforce career, right? At Leadership Educational Equity. I, at that point, because I had had a, a pretty good mentor within our frat, I think you interviewed him, John, John Burnett. Yes. Uh, former guest, friend of the show. Yes. Yeah. So because I had John Burnett in my corner, kind of like mentoring me and keeping me uh, focused on like, how do you plan or strategize your path forward? Um, I knew that my next step, right, had to be that I needed to get out of the nonprofit. If if I want to make money, I need to get out of the nonprofit. How I got out of the nonprofit, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I need I knew I needed to do that. I ended up getting out of the nonprofit through a recruitment agency, but I ended up working for a company that I really really wasn't my thing. Like working for leadership education, ed, leadership for edu, leadership for educational equity. Um you had that very like startup tech company feel as far as the culture of the company. Um, and when I worked at the, at the next company, uh, which it was very corporate old uh, and in Jersey. So it was like super like the opposite of, of that. And, but it was corporate, right? It was like, it was private, it was for-profit. And uh, I, I went that direction. And when I was, there, I had met someone who kind of just mentioned to me, oh, yeah, I heard I, I went on a tour uh, at Spotify and uh, I hear it's like a great company to work for. Literally, like maybe that was the end of that conversation. And from then, I had done a, a bit of research and made a decision. I was maybe what, like 20 14, 15, something like that. It was in the summertime. I had made the decision that I wanted to work for Spotify, but I knew that I wasn't ready to work for Spotify. So 
everything that I did from from now until then was to get me ready. And that was like doing my certifications, getting the the, the particular um, experiences that I needed in, in, in my uh, uh, path. And like actually like uh, constructing a resume that would be suitable for this company. And I ended up leaving that corporate company for another company because I just need to get out and they reached out to me on Facebook. I just need to go to this other company. And I was there. And all the while I'm doing all of these things that will make me a very good candidate for Google, for Spotify, for Facebook, right? And I put my resume out there and and um one, I think it was June of 2020, 2016, I saw a position. I was like, I'm gonna apply for this position. But I but my resume is just like it just had my last position, didn't have my current one. So I, I took a day and I was like, ah. Next day, I go back to the website and the position is gone. Gone. <laughs> gone, right? And I was like, oh, man, that sucks. What I did was I, uh, so that was maybe what, June of 2016-ish. I go on LinkedIn and type in Spotify and type in recruit, those two words. I looked down a list of people that had the recruiter title and their name that worked at Spotify. I picked the black woman and I sent her an email, uh, a, a LinkedIn message. Six months later, I get a recruitment message from her saying, hey, we saw your profile. Think that you'd be great at Spotify. That was in January. Think that you'd be great at Spotify. Uh, would you be open for an interview? And I was like, you must have gotten my message. <laughs> she never even saw it. She wow. just reached out to me. Uh, it was just random like that because only after you get in do you realize that like for every single position, they get thousands of applications, like every single one. And like, it's weird because they have to go through every single one. And like, they would tell me stories about how like they had like a internet securities position where it's just like, like like tech security, not like not like a bouncer, but bouncers were applying saying like, <laughs> like not bouncers um, though. Like no, like for real. She was like, yeah, they like were working at the club, like bouncing at the front door. And she would she would talk to them and they would be like, Yeah, I don't know what that is, but I can secure whatever you need me to secure. <laughs> Yeah. So, so they get thousands of positions and I'm sure she got thousands of emails because she's in, in recruitment and stuff like that. So she probably never saw my message, but it was just random that she was the one that reached out to me. It then took about four months after that, right? That was January. I had my first interview. I didn't actually start until I think May 5th was my first day at Spotify 2017. Mm -hmm. But I had, I had saw the position, the position that I had applied for June of 2016 was the position that I got uh, May 2017. And that's like how I got in. I wouldn't, I didn't have like, like I've interviewed at other companies and gotten rejected and then interviewed again for a different position, right? It wasn't that like, like multiple tries. It was just like being super um, um, resilient because it was like weeks between my interviews and you kind of have to like keep the same energy 
in order to get the job. Mm -hmm. And I got it, luckily. And, you know, there's a great lesson here because I think people have these these moments, these flashes where they see something and they're like, that's for me. Right. And they, mm. they start to work towards it. And especially in the age that we live in now, moving with intention and, you know, preparing yourself for when the opportunity arises. But oftentimes before the real opportunity comes, because that's just where your focus is, something else may flash up and you're like, this is it. Like, this is my moment. This is my shot. And when it doesn't work out the way you expected it to, a lot of people stop there. They're like, well, man, I, I thought this is what I was supposed to be doing. I saw this position. I went to apply. A day later, it was gone. This woman never, you know, most people don't even take it as far as you do of like reaching out to someone, but they feel like I've done all I can do. And because it didn't happen now, um, it maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's not going to happen. So I think that piece about being resilient is relevant to when you're in a state of expectation and maintaining mm. that before the real opportunity actually presents itself because it can take years. Yeah. And you know what? Like going all the way back to the beginning of this conversation when I said that I'm an 80s baby, baby but I have these like 90s values, that might be inaccurate because I do feel like I have like my parents' values. So going back to my mom, my mom immigrated here from Belize. My mom traveled through Mexico in somebody's van mm. and crossed the border illegally and got caught. Wow. And got sent back. Same night, jumped in somebody else's car and came across the border. Right? My father, he, um, my father has a stutter really bad stutter, right? And to me, it's like normal, but my father had to, like, for my father to be a poor Black man with no, didn't even know who his father was, had this really, really bad stutter, for him to make it to college and then become a professional initially in his life, a professional initially with this bad stutter and have better vernacular and better vocabulary than most of the people that he's dealing with. Like, I think that those values kind of, once again, got like stitched into me in a somewhere that like when I see a confrontation in life or obstacle in life, that obstacle is more of just something that's in the road and less of an actual barrier. Right. If if I want what's on the other side of that, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. But then the decision is not, oh, yeah, like, is the obstacle too hard to deal with is it is do I want what's on the other side enough or not? Like, is it actually valuable to me? And if it is valuable to me, then I go and get it regardless mm -hmm. of what the obstacle is. Right. So that's kind of how I how I would like sum up how I kind of view things these days, because. Once again, it happens all the time to me at different points in my life. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had to deal with that. So like thinking that. about now you've gotten in, you you know, you work at, at Spotify. And last year, as George Floyd protests were happening, you know, all over the country and a, a lot of companies were putting out statements, offering support, standing behind Black Lives Matter. Sure. There was a website that for every statement that for every company that put out a statement, every tech company, 
they would put what the statement was. It was a Google sheet circulating that I have seen, but they would also add their diversity numbers, right? Mm. Uh, no, no commentary, just sure. what their, what their was response Spotify's? was. I don't even remember. Um, okay. But, <laughs> but so the conversation that that sparked for a lot of people who work for tech, young tech companies um, is, okay, we know it's, it's great to work here. We have, you know, equity, we have options, we have all these things, free food. Um, I'm having a great experience, but we are underrepresented here. And are they really committed to DNI, right? Or am mm-hmm. I being tokenized? Have you ever had that internal dialogue? Like, am I the, you know, one of a few? And, 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 and if, whether you have or not, how do you feel about working in these environments? Do you feel that they're healthy? Do you feel that there is a legitimate focus on increasing the diversity numbers? So I think it would be hard for me to like legitimately say that I'm not a token mm. uh, in my area. I am, I am a product manager. We have these things called, like we don't really call them departments, we call them missions, right? So like for all intents and purposes, a mission and a department are the same thing. And in my mission, I'm, let's not even talk about my mission. Let's talk about my uh, area, which is below a, a, a mission. My area, I think I'm one of two mm-hmm. black product managers, right? Of hundreds of people in my area, right? And that's over two countries, right? The other one is in Sweden. <laughs> which is surprising, actually. <laughs> right, and we just lost one. She uh, she left. I don't know where she went, but uh, she was the third who ended up uh, leaving us, right? So it'd be pretty hard for me to say that people don't look at, like, when they are talking about diversity things that, you know, Scott Davis isn't a consideration for bringing into that conversation because it's only one of a few people that can speak from that angle there. However, the messaging, I would say, that has come from all over the company is, I mean, it has obviously increased, but not necessarily because of uh, uh, George Floyd my company has, I would say, from my, in my opinion, and I have to say that it's my opinion because I know that I don't speak for everybody. But in my opinion, I would say that my company is, for the most part, I think they value diversity. Mm-hmm. Now, what they see as diversity is, is the question, right? Um, at, unlike the other companies that you mentioned, S- Spotify has a has a Swedish history, not a not an American history. So for Facebook and Google's and all of that, diversity is very much race and ethnicity, right? In Sweden, race ethnicity just in the culture is not even a, a real thing, mm-hmm. right? It's mostly homogenized, and they have that like mentality that if you're Swedish, you're Swedish. You're not other. You're not Swedish uh, hyphenated something else, right? You're Swedish. So in Sweden, they don't have the same type of diversity um, criteria that we would have in America. And because of that, and because, because of that, and because most of our leadership was Swedish, 
it was a blind spot that Black people in America was something that needed to be accounted for diversity and needed to be a main focus. They were more concerned about um, women, uh, uh, gender, um, uh, handy, hand, handy capable, handy capabilities, right? So, like, mm-hmm. they were more concerned with that as far as diversity than they were concerned about like a uh, actual even distribution of the different types of people that exist mm. in our in our world and having our company or at least the american side of our company represent what the population actually looks like right since george floyd however i would say that the rhetoric around what diversity is has changed and has been become more focused on race and ethnicity being a main focus of diversity, especially in the United States. And I know that what I don't know is like the specific strategy that we're employing to do that, but I kind of see it in in spurts where I have now we are talking about uh, 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 like how I get brought into these diversity conversations. Now in my area, when we're talking about how do we hire I'm being brought into these conversations around like, how do we, like, how do we hire? And what is your opinion around this? And I'm able to give my opinion and I'm able to see that that opinion is actually used to help us find and uh, employ the the people that actually represent our, uh, like the breakdown of our, of our actual community. Right. Because that's, because I, I would say that that is my goal. I'm not saying that, like, as a Black person living in America, my goal is not necessarily for my company to only be Black. Uh, I'm also not trying to only work at a at a white company either. What I would like is for the people, if we have 100 people in, in, at our company, for the breakdowns of those people to represent the breakdowns of what it looks like on our in our in our actual country or in our area at the very least right for my building to represent what new york actually looks like as far as diverse 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 breakdowns right and so i know that i'm being brought into those conversations and people are actually employing some of those strategies like the ones that i think are like they like we plan in a quarterly way so like each quarter there are initiatives that help us get closer to what we have gold as like, this is what we want want to see as like the perfect picture of what our company looks like. Now, it take, I, I, would say, <laughs> I would say that there is like that, like actual, like tangible work that's being done. I would also say that as far as like people are concerned, like the actual individuals, not the organization, but the people themselves, I would say that that's where it gets to be like you see more empathy and you see more people trying to understand and you see more people really trying to talk to you about things that they that were not spoken of spoken about before. I had a very weird conversation with somebody at my company the other day that I'm easy to talk to about a lot of this type of stuff. So mm-hmm. he knew that and he talked to me and like his comment was like white man older white man he was like if i see a black person like but he preluded by saying 
feel free not to answer this question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he preluded by saying that. And then said, if I see a black person, like, can I just assume that they are left-leaning? And I was like, no, like, we're not a homogenous people, right? Like, people have different views, even within our own community. Uh, so no, you can't make that assumption. You have to get to know the person, and then you'll find out what they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was like a realization to him on that call. But to a degree, it's annoying because like, I don't feel like talking about this all the time. To another degree, I kind of appreciate that the people around me kind of want to know the struggles that I deal with on a regular basis. But I don't know how to strike that balance because um, I don't want to talk about this all day. Like I hate, I actually don't like talking about it outside of my circle. Uh, And to talk to him about it, like I also then need to say to him, like, listen, I might say some some stuff that you might find insulting, but it's how I feel. Are you okay with that? If you want to talk to me about some stuff and, you know, being able to strike those honest and open conversations are things that are happening more frequently now. As well. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm, I'm happy about on the one hand, but I do agree with you that it, it can be exhausting. It's not necessarily yeah. enjoyable for the party that is being asked to educate constantly right right? there's a level of labor there that is still putting the work on us right the onus on us to do the work for someone else uh to to see the world as it is so um i understand and we won't talk about it anymore in this interview right (laughs) um but now moving on to the family piece you are a married man um married well settled moved to the suburbs with the two kids like the whole nine the dog everything um (laughs) <laughs> when you met your wife, though, were you marriage minded? Like, were you, you know, they, they people often say that when men make the decision that they're ready to settle and then they meet the woman. Was that your story? Uh, hmm. So I would say that because of my background, marriage wasn't as much of a priority to me. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had a very vivid example of two people not being married and being able to make it work and the kid being happy, right? Having children was a priority to me, mm-hmm. but actually uh, having, and, and and like not having hella baby mamas and all of this other stuff, right? Was also a priority to me, but actual marriage wasn't. However, when I, um, when I met my wife, um, so I think it's important to say that my wife is older than me. She mm-hmm. is uh, eight years my senior. And that came with its own learning from my perspective, um, as well as uh, uh, it was a different, it was a, tw- a, a different flavor than the, the, the relationships that have been in, in the past. So, um, Maybe if she was younger, I might not have gotten to this point as quickly as I did. Um, Like if she was younger than me or if she was my age, I might not have gotten to this point as quickly as I did. So I don't know if I was necessarily marriage minded, but she definitely uh, kind of sped up the process or or it was her it was her indirect influence that helped to get me to be in this mindset quicker than I would have been, I think, had I not been with her. Does that make sense? 
Yes. And so where were you in, in your career and sort of economically and all those things, right. right, when you met her? I was broke. <laughs> <laughs> right, Which is so. even, that's an even more important tidbit when you're talking about meeting a woman and that's courting funny. a woman who's eight years older than you. Yeah, I was broke. So my wife at the time, I think she was 12 years into her career. Mm. So well-established, six-figure salary, like very like fine, right? Didn't need me, right? I, on the other hand, made $30,000 a year. (laughs) I made $30,000 a year when I met my wife. I didn't tell her I made $30,000 a year, but I made $30,000 a year when I met her. And at the time, um, not only was I work, so that's when I was working for Abyssinian Development Corporation. I'm working there, but I also like, uh, because of my fraternity at the time, I was doing a lot of like the stuff that DeMarcus was doing when he first came in. So like the graphic design, the website management, all of that type of stuff. So I had developed a company around that, right? Mm-hmm. And it was called Cultivated Creations. I don't think the website is up anymore, but it's called Cultivated Creations, where it was like a one-stop shop if you needed to develop your brand almost, right? Much of the business, much of my revenue came from, for that, came from website development uh, for people just because it was a a high-cost item. Um, but most of my actual volume came from like flyer design or journal designs mm-hmm. and, and things like that, right? So I was supplementing my income with the money that I was making from that, which I would say was pretty good, right? Like I think I made somewhere close to maybe like like fifteen thousand or sixteen thousand untaxed dollars mm-hmm. a year, right? Um, and then at the at the um, yeah, so I think that those were the only two things that were supplementing my income. And then I met my wife, who I, I feel like our first date, she wore like like Gucci boots. And I was just like, well, damn. And and FYI, so like let me go back also in that I wasn't I was also living above my means mm. at the same time, right? So like, oh, I, I had a roommate that helped me like to also supplement my income. But I was living above my means. I had like a really nice car that I had, you know, I, I just never got rid of when I came back to New York from Miami. I had a really nice coupe. So like when she met me and she, I picked her up in my car, I don't think she thought, oh, he's broke. <laughs> like I, I, I think I get, I think I gave off, at least initially gave off the impression that I had money, at mm-hmm. least a little bit of money, at least enough money to not be crazy but I was I was actually broke right and I remember uh I I, so I always say that like my wife I I give my wife uh a a um a spot in my development right because she was a uh push for me and I'll tell you the story about that I was having a conversation this is after like I had seen her a few times and we're having a conversation. She was like, yeah, I want to get to know you. So she's now asking me questions about what it is that I actually do. Like, mm. like what, what do you do? 
right? Like what, like when you go home on Monday, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, so I work for Avisan Development Corporation. I'm this data management analyst and I do this and this and that for them. But on the side, you know, I have my own company and it's like, I do this stuff and that stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I'm in my head, right? Thinking, all right, like my answer is like, because I, I it was like how you just asked me who is Scott. She asked me that like out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I came up with that answer. I was like, all right, great answer. Her response to me was, oh, so you don't have your together. <laughs> that was that was the first thing she said to me. And I was like, uh, I mean, I don't know how to respond to that, right? Like, I didn't really know how to respond to that, right? Because at the same time, I'm still, like, not trying to, like, have her not mess with me anymore. Also, I don't want her, I don't want her thinking that I'm, <clears throat> that I can't uh, support myself or anything like that, right? And that's what she said. And it was almost from then that I was like, oh, what, at the very least, I need to get this answer down pat. Right. Mm-hmm. Like whatever I say, when someone asks me, what is it that you do? You need to have a good, succinct answer. So people don't think that you don't have your together. That was the first thing. And then the second thing was I actually need to get my together so that I can have a good, succinct answer. Sorry, I cursed, but that was like the okay. conversation. <laughs> and uh, that's where I was when I met her. And. I I've never I've never told her this uh, because um, I don't think that it was any reason to tell her. But in my head, uh, I I feel like it's very very important that when you're planning your goals in life, that you have an example, like a realistic example of what it could look like, mm-hmm. what that goal could look like, right? What that means, right? Because you need to make it realistic, right? You need to make it like an actual attainable goal, right? So if I'm making $30,000 today, right? Is it actually realistic that in two weeks that I'll be making triple that, mm-hmm. right? Like, like I, need to, I need to be able to pace myself and say, all right, here's my, here's my North Star. But in, like, in order to get to that North Star, these are the smaller steps that I need to take. And I kind of use my wife's salary, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, salary as that North Star, mm-hmm. her salary at the time. I think she was making like, I don't know, I don't want to get into it, but like maybe like a hundred and like fifty, something like that, thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year. And she was eight years older than me. So at the time, what was that seven years ago? So what she was like 35, mm-hmm. right? Something like that, maybe. I think. So at 35, I need to be making 150, (laughs) right? That was my goal, right? Mm -hmm. How do I get there all the way, right? So that's where I use like mentorship from John and John taught me how to negotiate because he's good with that. I use, um, I use my own resilience and like actually getting my career to where it needs to be in order for me to like make certain steps. And then I like, I use like my, like, uh, I think, I don't know if this is a Harlem thing or not, but like I use my, like, my wife says it's like a 
always thinking about how something works for you. Like you're never mm -hmm. stuck at where you are. You're always thinking about the next thing. So like when, after I left Abyssinia Development Corporation, I was at this company, I was always thinking about, all right, what's the next step for me? Or what's the next promotion for me? I was never really stuck at where I was, right? Mm -hmm. And how quickly can I make that next step? And how do I negotiate that salary, right? And how do I move, right? So I stayed at Leadership Education Equity maybe two years, something like that. My next jump, I so from Abyssinian Development Corporation, I had a 100% salary increase when I got to Leadership Education Equity. My next company, I had a, uh, what do you call it? A 33% increase from there. My next company, I had a 50% increase from where I was there. And then I got to Spotify and then I had a, I think it was like a like a 25% increase. So by the time, by that point, my wife's salary, current salary at that time had increased even more. So I had a different North Star at that point. But by that, by the time I was uh it was three years ago, by 2017, I had already blew past what my goal was to make mm -hmm. it by 35 because I'm I'm going to be 35 this year. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, that's kind of how I did it in order to get to where I am. And now I'm just like super complacent because I got two kids and I don't, I'm fine with my salary where it is. So, so that like, actually was going to be my next question. Uh, when people have kids, priorities change, right? So you clearly are someone who is very strategic you know, have been striving to get better, do better, make more money, et cetera. But now you have these two beautiful boys. Um, is your outlook different? Like you, you, you partially answered it already and said that you become a bit complacent, but um, is there now later down the road, are you still saying, okay, when they get a little bit older, I still want to thrive for that half million dollar job or, or I want to be a millionaire. Yeah. So my goal is not salary anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, obviously, I don't want to make less money. I want to continue to make money. But like my yearly increases are fine where it is now. And just this is keeping in mind the fact that if my wife had a job, my wife got laid off at the beginning of COVID. So plans are a little different, like are still a bit up in the air, depending on whether she can get a job or like what we need to do in, in relation to that. Let's just say that this was COVID never happened. Where I would be right now is salary wouldn't be a goal for me. It would be more so um, happiness or, yeah, happiness is would be my main goal, right? So am I happy at work? Am I doing the work that I actually want to do, right? When I go into the office every day, am I getting some type of intrinsic value from that? That is aside from money. At one point in time, intrinsic value was not at all a thing. If I was making money, I would do whatever, right? But now it's like, do am I happy? The first, that's first. Secondly, I will not be happy if I cannot take time away from work in order to appropriately uh, uh, spend that time with my family, right? So happiness is the ultimate goal, but what is it that makes me happy is being able to be an actual active, present father daily to my to my to my to my kids, 
being able to be an active, present uh, husband to my wife and being able to uh, give them the life financially and uh, 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 emotionally and all of that stuff that they need in order to like thrive, right? And that that applies to um, both my wife and my kids. I apply that criteria to both of them because I do know that my wife has needs from me as well. And I thrive and I strive to give those things to her in in whatever feasible way I can actually do it because sometimes she'd be ridiculous too. So I'm like, nah. don't shake the wife on my show, please. <laughs> I, I don't even know her. And I'm like, I, I gotta defend her. So no. Uh no, my wife is great. I mean, I would say like uh she's awesome, but you know, sometimes she'd be like, oh and I'm like, I can't do that. Like I can't, I can't do that but I could do other things. So let's see. But yeah, like I've, I've even like, um, like Spotify is a, is an awesome company and I love working here and I don't see myself really leaving anytime soon unless like something drastically changes. But I was telling my wife when she got laid off, I was like, should we, should I consider, should we consider not living in Jersey? Should we consider like, like move into like a much lower cost area since you know we have the I have the flexibility to do that with my work and actually stay at Spotify and move but even like if you need me to work somewhere else like do you want to be a stay-at-home mother do you want to spend more time with the children because I know that you were miserable when you were working when it came to like uh, a childbearing like do you want to like do that and I will cover all of this other stuff obviously our life has to change because i can't afford this place on just my salary but if we need to adjust life and i'll take a little bit of unhappiness at work in order to keep you happy at home i'll do it for you if that's what you want to do but also i also need that decision right now because we need to start making moves right (laughs) but yeah those i mean that's like how things have changed like it's less about me and like my bank account which is Mm -hmm. what it was before um now it's about me being happy and what it and it's just the definition of happiness that 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 really drives that yeah and I think some men sort of ease into the transition to marriage and the fact that it's not just all about them any any more um more easily uh than others and I'll, I'll put that in with like being a parent as well. Right. Because there's always this idea that like men's lives don't change that much. Right. When they get married and have children, it's the woman's lives that adjust in a lot of ways. But there are men like you who've like fully embraced this role and, and can compromise and make sacrifices and all that other stuff. Why do you think it's so hard for particularly young men sometimes to to kind of see things through that lens and realize like it's not all about you anymore? Mm. So I would say that I'm, I, it wouldn't be fair of me to even answer that question uh, because I was never that person. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think that for me, uh, family and lineage and legacy has always been important, right? For me, specifically, um, having uh, uh, like a unit and a and a and a like a 
Like I, I like the the family unit and the fact that we are moving our family forward. And I'm very structured in that way that like, mm-hmm. I want us to achieve, not just me or not just her, or I want us to be great. And I know that that means something, not just for us, but for, but for everybody that, that is before me, mm-hmm. that I am able to say, all right, in order for that end goal to happen, here are all of the steps that you have to take before we get to us being great, right? And one of those steps is it ain't all about me. Right. Right? So I'm I'm clearly able to see the connection between the compromise and the goal. And that is the reason why I think it is, it, I, I, I feel like it's been, I don't think that I've eased into it. I think that I've like, I like was walking one day and I literally just fell into the, the into the pit and that this is the world that I'm in now <laughs> um, because it happened really quickly. Uh, I, if you want to ask me about that, we could talk about it, but it happened really quickly and I adjusted very quickly into that new lifestyle. And uh, I think that that's pretty much what it is for me now. And I knew I wanted to have kids by a certain age. I knew that I wanted to, I wanted to be a younger father and all of that stuff. And this is all of the stuff that you have to do in order to get to a certain place, right? So I was really clearly able to see the connection. I would, the only reason I would say that other people, uh, it's harder for other people is because that that connection is not as as tangible and visible, mm-hmm. right? Like. These are like, literally, if you want to be somewhere in five years, you have to make a a particular step right now. And that step is this. And are you, and is that goal important enough for you to make that, that, that step right now? If so, then this is, this is, this is what you have to do. And I don't think that people clearly see those connections and they put a lot of that stuff off. And when they do, then they get to five years from now and they haven't accomplished the thing that they should have been able to accomplish had they been able to see that connection. That makes mm-hmm. sense. It does. I think that's the only that's the only like guess that I can take there. Got it. So shifting gears, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary yeah. day. Yeah. I hate this question. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time we've gotten that response, but that is such a spot a Scott response to that question. Yeah. I um so. I don't think that I'm extraordinary. I think that I'm normal. So all of the steps that I've taken have not been extraordinary steps. They've been what you are supposed to do in order to get to that next place. However, um, there are some sacrifices that I think that I've made in life that um, made me like, that kind of like made, made me almost sent me into the the path that I wanted that I'm that I'm in right now. And I would say like the the starting point or that decision for me to drop out of law school. Mm-hmm. I would say that that was probably the most profound reason that I had to do something that was like completely against what I had planned on doing, but it was for a good cause. It was to support my mom. Right? Mm-hmm. I dropped out of law school, not that I couldn't finish law school, probably would have been able to finish law school. But I did that because I knew that my mom needed support at that moment. And she 
wouldn't have been able, like after the severance, of course, she wouldn't have been able to support me the way that I would have needed to have been supported when I was when I was in law school. So either we would have broken ties in the sense that I would have gone my own path and she would have had to forge a new path, or I would now become the actual man of the house, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I was able to, from that instance, um, develop, uh, create a, a life that allowed my mom to retire allowed her to move back to Belize and live the life that she actually wanted to live and not be one, not be like worried about, oh, how am I going to make my next dollar? Because she knows that she's supportive, but also not worry about, oh, is her son going to be okay? Because she knew I was set up and ready to like, you know, take that move forward. So I would say like that was probably like the most monumental the decision that I made in life because it was such a deliberate decision to go against things that I didn't I didn't I didn't think that I should go against at the time but that is the decision that I made so we do need to close the loop on this funny story about your your boy sure <laughs> so we were talking about um do you take away your kids innocence and you were talking about like that them being affirmed that they experienced this thing and, you know, that might've been racism or whatever. Right. So I think about that a lot, right. My, uh, my wife, my wife's family don't have the highest, uh, uh, Mm self-esteem, let's just say, right. Of any individual, right. They're not the, they, they, their, their, their scores are not off the charts. However, my score is, I think I'm the best. I think I'm the, I, like anybody that my wife would date after me, if she could find somebody after me that she could deal with, would be subpar, obviously, right? So like, that's just like how I just walk through life. I've gotten, I've gotten fatter. I'm not getting any prettier, but I'm still the best that anybody could get, right? That's how I, how I live. My wife is the opposite, right? So it's like we bringing up these kids and you can either have them go one way where they they uh, have like a low self-esteem about themselves because either they're different or whatever, blah, blah, have a super high self-esteem. So they're super obnoxious and arrogant, which I've been called multiple times. Um, or you could give them some level of like they're different, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. Right. I decide to go this other route. Right. No, like <laughs> like all the way over here. <laughs> So I know that my kids are being raised in this suburb. My suburb is mostly white, of course, right? And they go to a private school right now, right? So they're around people who are mostly uh, uh, lighter than they are, right? Whether they're white or not, right? And I, I, I was like, all right, we need to address this. I'm not seeing anything, but we need to make sure that they're not going into school thinking that because their skin is darker or because someone says something that they are a subpar or a substandard, right? Mm -hmm. And actually, they're actually better than all of these other kids, right? So we uh, would see, we had like books and things that we read to the kids. And my kids would come home, like looking at magazines. And this is maybe what, like a year and a half a year and a half, two years ago, they would see magazines and they would see like, like a pretty white woman in the magazine. And they would say, oh, she's a princess, right? 
that's a princess, right? Not pointing to the black woman that might have been right next to her. They are pointing to this white woman mm-hmm. that's right next to her. That that is in the magazine. She's a princess, right? And I'm assuming that because there's a picture of a princess in the school, but the princess is white, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Not black, right? So I hear that and I'm like, all right, cool. This is how we're gonna do this. So anytime they say, Oh, she's pretty, right? I say, Yeah, she's pretty, but she would be better looking if she was black. <laughs> She would be better looking if she was black. I know your friends are smart, but they would be smarter if they were black. Guess what? You are. You're black, right? Yeah, like they 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 have this mentality that they're black. So they see pictures of black people in books now. They point out the like I think they point out Lupita in, in a magazine the other day and said, "Oh, she's pretty," right? They see black women and see their beauty above other people, which is what I was trying to get at, right? If even at, if I had to start at the most surface, like this is what they look like, right? So this is how that manifests. Months later, I met my friend, her their godparents, Adrian, who is the, the rich black woman that I told you about. She has a pool in her backyard. I mean, in the, in the back of her house. So we go to the pool and she has a boyfriend now who is, Mexican, but he looks white, mm-hmm. right? And he has a beard, but he he looks white. And Judah, my 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 second oldest son, is at the pool, but is very standoffish at the pool. And we're like, why are you so standoffish? Like this is not you. You're super outgoing. What is going on with you? the entire time we were there? We maybe there for like two hours. The entire time that we were there, he was very standoffish, right? He was interacting with Adrian, interacting obviously with us, but we didn't notice that he wasn't interacting with Adrian's boyfriend. We get into the car. Judah, what was going on with you? He was like, that man, he was white. I didn't, like, it, like he, I just, to actually repeat what he said would be hard for me to do, but pretty much the sentiment was he was uncomfortable being around these white people. It didn't feel normal to him to have all of these black people around. And then there's one white guy, like that was out of place. What is going on? I don't want to interact with that person. And at that moment, I was like, I have succeeded. Now let's pull it back a little bit. Let's just I was about bring to say, that back. You, you got to dial that back though. You no, got to dial because, it back. Because here we go. Here we go. I would much rather like if we had two different options, my kids being super arrogant, thinking that they're better than everybody because of who they are. That's one avenue. Or my, my kids thinking that they're worse than everybody else because of who they are, right? If those are the only two options that I have, I would much rather go this, go this direction, right? Where they think that they're better than everybody. And then my work along the way is, all right, you're not actually better. Like, it's good that you kind of think that, but like, you actually have to work to be better than people like you actually you have to like put effort into that you just don't just exist that way but i can rein that back it's much easier to rein that back and i think it's a much better experience to rein that back than to give them self-esteem right Mm -hmm. right it's like how you said at the beginning it's better if your stories are long because we can edit down but we can't add stuff that ain't there right (laughs) right (laughs) right 
And if they have that lower self-esteem, I don't know if I'd be able to add that stuff once they actually have cemented that thought process in their head, right? So I'd much rather them be here and take away and edit back than to put more on them that I don't know if they would have at that point. So I'm very like, no, you're better than people. No, you're smarter than people. No, blah, 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 blah. You can run faster than him. They, they ask me, oh, yeah, like when they see things happening on TV, they're like, um, hey, daddy, can you, it's like random, random stuff. Daddy, can you uh, swim with the sharks? And I was like, of course I can swim with the sharks. I can do anything I want to do. And you can too, mm-hmm. because you're better than everybody. And daddy is. I cannot swim with the sharks. I will not even, I would not even like be near a shark, but he doesn't know that. And he needs to think that he is, he can do it if he actually puts his mind to it. That's where I want him to be. So just make sure you dial it back enough uh, before the teachers start calling uh, from the school. Hey, I can't promise anything. <laughs> I'll try. But, uh, but I'm also like trying to instill in them like everything that they get now, even if it's something small they have to earn. Mm-hmm. Right. So I feel like, if they can't do something and they have to work it out, I'll help them work at it in order for them to earn that thing. So I do kind of instill in them also, like, listen, you, you're not just great at riding the bike, you have to practice that, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's kind of counteracting it because they like make mistakes and fall off the bike and hurt themselves. That'll like bring them back to reality really quick. Oh, I'm not the best person at riding the bike, but I can be though. Absolutely. And that's where I need them to be. So you've kept up the alpha tradition of guests on this show uh, (laughs) offering the record-breaking length of our interviews. Uh, So you've kept the momentum going there. Thank you. (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I knew it was going to be great. Um, You delivered, for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, if people are interested in connecting with you you're not an online personality as some of our guests but if they want to network or just want to know more about your story can they find you online yeah um you know what the best place to go in order to find out about me and my family and the things that i would like to put out there is to go to my website my family's website uh davis F as in Frank, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, Y as in Yankee.com. So it reads davisfamily.com, but family doesn't have vowels in it. And there you'll be able to find contact information for me, but you'd also be able to see some blog posts that I write about my family very sporadically. So you are an online personality then? I'm not an online person. No (laughs) one knows. Like this is the first time I actually even told anybody about the website, to be honest. Uh, But no, I'm not an online personality and I'm much... I'd much prefer to be the person in the, in the background, but I do like uh, structure. And that website helps me, uh, like, if people ask, what do the kids want for Christmas? Like, I send them a page from the website with all of the things that we've planned to get them for Christmas. So it helps with that type of stuff. Okay, got it. So davisfamily.com without the I, is that correct? Without the vowels. So no A, no I. No A, no I. Got it. Okay, so there you have it. Um, well, like I said, this was great. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. We finally got you on now. You, you you reminded us that it's been a few years we've been doing this, but you are now in the annals of history as a guest of the December 26th podcast. This is awesome. To I our love listeners, it. 
I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I feel like you would have had you would have strong opinions either way about whether it was good or not, and would not hesitate to tell me either way. So I'm glad you you loved it. Yeah, if I didn't like it, I would say I didn't like it. I know. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm glad. You know what it is. You know what it is. I do like talking about myself, so mm-hmm. that's probably what it is. At least you can admit it. A lot of people do, but they don't want to admit it. Yeah. Well, you know, gotta you gotta be able to recognize the things in your life that make you who you are. But anyway, um, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate you guys inviting me. Anytime you need me back, I'll come back on. Oh, I know you will. Well, yeah, trust me. We we got to hear about the next phase of your story. So eventually, we will be bringing some guests back for sure. To our right. listeners. Thanks for tuning in as always, especially to our Alpha Collective. Like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about this show. If you are interested in breaking into tech, Salesforce, certification, all those great things or any other part of Scott's story, feel free to reach out to him online. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.